Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. You can find The Aside podcast on the Apple podcasting app, Spotify, Android podcasting apps, SoundCloud and more. I'm Nick Waxman and today we are talking to Adam Hembry, one of the co-creators of Sooth Players, a troupe of actors who improvise original works inspired by Shakespeare. They also run workshops on how to do what they do with schools and theatre groups. Before moving to Melbourne, Adam completed his MA in English, writing his thesis on Shakespearean villainy. He is currently pursuing a PhD in English and Theatre Studies at the University of Melbourne, studying magic, witchcraft and the art of acting during Shakespeare's era. As an improviser, Adam has trained and performed with the National Comedy Theatre in Phoenix. He has also trained with the Improv Conspiracy and performs with Impro Melbourne. For more information on his academic work, see his research profile at historyofemotions.org. Today, we speak to this logophile, Adam Hembry, about his PhD research, his love of words, and what Sooth players are doing to help students engage with theatre, improvisation, Shakespeare, and more. Without further ado, I bring you Adam Hembry. Welcome, Adam. Uh, It's delightful to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you describe your PhD research and how that involves Macbeth's witches? Well, my project is about how people during Shakespeare's time used to think of acting. And my argument, or what my research is telling me, is that they thought of acting very similarly to the way they thought of witchcraft and magic. Uh, And that's specifically about how um, witches and mages manipulate people with their powers. uh, And actors, in much the same way, manipulate people's emotions using their bodies on the stage. So when it comes to Macbeth's witches, um, they are basically the engine that drives that play. So their words become the deeds that Macbeth and the people around him do. Uh, And there's this funny pattern where whenever the witch's prophecy gets spoken again by someone else, like let's say Macbeth or Lady Macbeth or Banquo, uh, the events that those words foretold happen very soon thereafter. Um, And to me, that's a kind of magic. That's that's words that have power, right? That's that's what magic does. So uh, you know, I can slip into a bit of a rabbit hole on that front, but they're they're fascinating to me as characters. How and when did you first encounter Shakespeare and heightened language? I had a great teacher when I was in eighth grade, uh, and she got us to do Midsummer Night's Dream, or an excerpt from it, but she made us stand up and read it out loud, uh, just little bits and bobs of it. Uh, and I got to be Puck, and I was obsessed. I loved that character. And I kind of haven't looked back since then. I had the same teacher a couple of times, Miss Ellington, in high school, and she was fantastic. Um, so I had this really uh, wonderful, grounded, not pretentious kind of introduction to Shakespeare. Uh, and I got to find the fun in it and the, the filthiness of it and the silliness alongside the sort of beautiful, moving presence of it. And then, so I, I, any chance I could get when I was in uni to take Shakespeare, classes or classes that had Shakespeare texts in them. And after uni, when I came back to do my master's, I um, decided that I wanted to learn more about Shakespeare's villains. So I I did my master's thesis on Iago and Richard III. Um, And that's sort of what laid the groundwork for my PhD research, because that that research sort of told me how much control these characters, these villains would have over other characters and also over the audience. And that sort of uh, led me down this mad, this magic rabbit hole. 
Tell us about your experience as a professional working with heightened language. I think um, one of the things that I've come to learn that I'm really gratified to learn is that what is normal to think of as heightened language is actually, I mean, it's not thought of that way in Shakespeare's time. You know, we, we associate Shakespearean sounding language with fanciness or formality. But, you know, there's, as an example, like you hear the words thou and thee, and you think automatically it's like, um, it's this sort of elevated register. And in terms of language history, thou and thee were informal words. You know, they were, they were used to talk with people on your level or lower. And that was changing in Shakespeare's time. Like if people were using you and thou interchangeably, it didn't, didn't really matter as much, but that history is there. So I always like to remember when people think that this is really clever and fancy and strange or elevated, uh, it's actually just the way people talked, um, the same way that you and I are talking now. So I guess the more I learn about it, the more normalized it becomes. And to me, the more fun it becomes because it becomes something you can just speak instead of having to sort of handle like, a, like an exotic animal. Did you work with Shakespeare in Phoenix, Arizona? Uh, I was living there for two years and I was teaching year seven actually. Uh, but while I was, uh, I was an improviser there as well at a place called the National Comedy Theater. And we used to put on shows that mainly featured uh, short form games in a kind of uh, comedy sports style situation uh, or theater sports similar to that, a uh, slightly different format. But one of the games that we used to play was called Shakespeare. And my, my friends there learned quickly that I would just brighten up whenever someone said, now we're gonna play a game called Shakespeare. So they would try to throw me that bit of fun as much as they could. Um, but not really that much. I did also get to perform in a, a, a community theater production of Romeo and Juliet, which was so fun. Um, but it was otherwise kind of a, uh, a few year hiatus from regular performing for me. And I, I broke that when I moved to Australia about five years ago. How did the Sooth players come to be? I, I started uh, retraining and performing uh, improvised comedy here at the Improv Conspiracy when I moved to Melbourne. And uh, through that, I learned about a workshop that was being run by Jenny Lovell. Now, Jenny um, works at Impro Melbourne, another uh, improv troupe here in Melbourne. And she was running a, a weekend workshop on improvising Shakespeare. And she's got years of experience as an actor uh, and an improviser working with Shakespearean style language. And I think she's done some work at the Globe and she's phenomenal. Anyway, she led this workshop that made us use that language in a purposeful way and had us play with scene types that are common in Shakespeare. She had to get comfortable with stage combat in the Shakespearean era. Uh, and after that workshop finished, um, my friend Ryan Patterson, who I knew from Improv Conspiracy, messaged me and said, I don't know about you, but I want to keep doing this. And I said, absolutely. So a few of the people who did that workshop with us, as well as some of our other friends who were interested when we put a call out to our respective um, improv and theater channels, we all just sort of got together on a Saturday afternoon in the upstairs room of this pub um, and just started, started playing. Uh, and we rehearsed every week and eventually signed ourselves up for the 2015 Melbourne Fringe Festival. And then I guess that was kind of a kick in the pants to say, well, you better have a, a presentable product in a couple of months. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a bad time for everyone. So we put on a bit of a proof of concept show uh, and we were just having so much fun. Uh, 
and then the season was a success and we haven't really looked back ever since. What does improvising Shakespeare offer audiences that straight classics don't? Well, I know that everyone approaches Shakespeare in their own way as a director and actor, so I don't want to generalize. What I will say is that what we, what we do um, is probably neither straight nor classic. Uh, it's not about reverence to some bygone era, some golden age. That's not how we think of it. It's about having fun. And we, we believe that the way to have that fun is to cast off a bit of that reverence to really just try to understand these tropes and conventions from where they're coming from. You know, when they were getting made, they weren't treating themselves reverently. You know, they, they weren't keeping themselves at an arm's length. So we try to just muck in the same way. We try to speak the language as though we're just speaking it. We try to work with the conventions as though they are what's just in the air around us. The same way that you and I might know the tropes and conventions of a romantic comedy or a teen supernatural romance today that they're just in the air so we try to work that way with comedy and tragedy and history in the sort of elizabethan sense and that means that we're not as restricted to people's expectations about say romeo and juliet or macbeth or hamlet because they've seen those plays 15 times and they've seen adaptations of those plays 100 times they hear words from those plays every few days in pop culture. So instead of being beholden to those expectations, we just get to play. And I think very quickly the audiences sort of get on board with that and realize they can just, they can just kind of unclench. <laughs> After shows, my favorite responses are when people come up and they say, I finally feel like I understood some Shakespeare. And I think, yes, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> that's the whole idea. Like imagine going to theater like you're going to a museum. That's not really the point, right? It's, it's to have fun. What kind of workshops do you run? How does it help students engage with text, performance, drama, and their studies? We, we tend to go in a, a, a two-pronged approach. We like to do a, a show at first, as long as there's kind of time and uh, availability to do so, so that students and teachers know what they're getting into with us. They know what we do. Um, and the way that works is we ask the audience for a title of a play that could have been written by Shakespeare, yet was not. We're a bit flexible on that front. I, I think our last school show was called Fortnite. Um, so we, we then will put on an hour long play, roughly, depending on their schedule. And all of it's made up. There's no, no pre-rehearsals, no kind of frames that we're trying to fit. It's just two people walk on stage and now it's a scene. They start talking and we figure it out as we go. So then once that ends, um, we will often have a workshop with some of the students or all of the students who saw the show. And our job is to get them on their feet and actually doing Shakespeare. So that doesn't mean that we hand out scenes from Romeo and Juliet. It's more like we, we get them going through motions that Shakespearean actors would have to go through. So we get them listening to each other. We get them to engage with their bodies. We get them to do um, exercises that encourage good improvising. So uh, having big heightened emotional reactions to things, making every choice matter. But then at the same time, we want to work in some specific Shakespearean conventions, because we know that in order for this to loop in with curriculum, we also need to be able to give these students the chance to better engage with the text when they go back to it. So we want to show them what it's like to play with an extended metaphor. We want to show them what it's like to use a simile in the vein of like, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun, 
or you know, uh, comparing their love to someone, to something else. We partner them up and we get them to describe their love for their partner or their hate for their partner. And we get their partners to encourage them, oh, say on, what's that? Uh, and to see where it takes them. And they, the whole idea behind those kinds of exercises is to get students to stop worrying and to start having fun, to listen so closely, as we might say, to listen like a thief, so that they're tuning out that kind of fear and that trepidation, that worry that they have about engaging with Shakespeare and their teenagers, many of them, so that that fear they have about being silly in front of their friends, you know, they need to be cool. So our, our job is to kind of get them out of that as best we can to make them feel safe, to make them feel silly and to get them up and moving, swinging imaginary broadswords and declaring their love to people on balconies from across the room. Uh, the sillier and sweatier we can get them by the end, the happier we are. And uh, we found the happier they are. Why improvise Shakespeare? What are the benefits? I'll, I'll tell you just a quick anecdote from my acting experience. I remember in a uni production of As You Like It, I was in, uh, I was playing Orlando and I used to get, not in big trouble, but in just a bit of trouble for my stage manager because her job was to track and note every single word that was off script. Um, and I had this habit of saying exactly what I was meant to say, but changing a small percentage of the words often. Uh, and it, it was never changing the sense of the line. It was never making anyone miss their cues, but it was often not word perfect by a noticeable percentage. And, and so she was like, you're not getting called out by the director for this, but I have to make a little note slip every time you do this. Please stop it. Um, and I find, I find improvising much more liberating in that respect. I think it's like the difference between reciting a poem and writing a poem or uh, um, saying uh, like when you, when you're just making a poem, you're speaking the language. Whereas when you're reciting a poem, you're remembering a language, you're treating something that's there. And I love speaking this language. I love just doing it, being it. I think that is the best, that's the best means to actually perform Shakespeare, is to sit in that time period, those tropes, and to speak that language, uh, and then to not know what's coming, because then you have a kind of double layer of fun associated with it, because no one knows what's coming, and that's, that's part of the joy. Tell us about your experience in schools. Sure. Um, I love doing school shows and workshops. I think that um, students especially, once they sort of get the vibe of our show, they get really interactive. Um, and this is sort of, if, you, if you're into Shakespeare scholarship at all, you might be familiar with this trope that audiences may have been a bit rowdier in Shakespeare's time. Um, and I, you know, it's hard for us to make really educated calls about that, but I like that trope. I like the idea of it being a sort of rowdy theater space where people feel like they can talk back to players sometimes or interact with them in a, in a safe way, obviously. The students, once they cotton on to that, once we sort of turn to them and, and sort of shout some abuse at them in a fun way or uh, and ask them for help on something, they really get into it and they lose those inhibitions much quicker than adults do. Um, and so that's a delight, really. And then in the actual workshop space, um, the great thing about this is that for some students, uh, and we've gotten this feedback before in our regional tours, our show and workshop might be their first exposure to live theater. Um, you know, live theater doesn't have quite the same uh, normal presence in people's lives, especially young people's lives, as it used to, um, for better or for worse. That's just that's just 
true about how we entertain ourselves. So to know that, you know, we've come to this place and the students have gotten the chance to do this and see this for the first time, I think it's pretty special. Uh, and it's, it, I love the idea that some little theater kid to be uh, in regional Victoria is watching what we do and suddenly realizes, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and we've had a few students approach us after shows and give feedback like that. And I, you know, that's, that's just the best. There's nothing better than that. Can you tell us about your current show and where teachers and students can find you? Sure thing. Um, all the details about our shows are available on our website, soothplayers.com. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at soothplayers. Um, we're about to perform in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival for our fourth season uh, at Trades Hall at 8.15 p.m. for two weeks. Um, we've got a sister show as well called Completely Improvised Potter, which if you like our show, you're sure to love as well. It's good fun. Um, you can find more information about our school's workshops on our website. We have an education page, and you can always get in touch with us via email uh, or message us on Facebook. We're very quick to respond. Uh, and I'm always really excited to, to chat about uh, workshops and things like that. We've done work with schools as well as community theater. Uh, so we are happy to work with actors. And we're also happy to sort of work with you to tailor a program to what you think suits your students and what you want to get out of the workshop. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're the teacher, you're the one working with the fallout from the, the workshop. It should, at least in some respect, be up to you what you get out of it. Thanks for your time today, Adam Hembry. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to find out more about the Sooth Players, you can go to soothplayers.com. That's S-O-O-T-H-P-L-A-Y-E-R-S dot com. That's all from us at The Aside. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so feel free to go through those and find one that piques your interest. You can listen on the Apple Podcasting app, Android Podcasting apps, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a question for us or you'd like to suggest an episode, you can email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you very much to Drama Victoria for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>